The scripture reading this morning will be taken from Micah chapter 7 verses 18 through 20. That's Micah chapter 7 verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we want to be an encouragement to you. Uh, we look forward also to tonight and hope that everyone will be back tonight as we'll have a combined worship service with uh, those that normally worship in our Hispanic service. Uh, we'll all be together tonight and the service will be uh, translated and, and we are thankful in the past. That's always been such a blessing. We've done this each year for a few years now and we're thankful to have the opportunity again. We appreciate so much Elias and the great work that he does and each of the members that are a part of this congregation uh, that speak Spanish and and uh, the fellowship that we have with them. And we look forward to this time together tonight. We're also thankful for the opportunity to begin another month and to begin thinking about a topic this month that probably is one that maybe not among us, I hope not, but among so many today, it's a topic that is so much taken for granted. It's easy to throw around the word forgiveness and, and act as if it is cheap to become apathetic about it or perhaps to even totally just lose our focus. And so we hope that this month will be a reminder of us, to us, of how important the topic of forgiveness is, the one who forgives us, and then also the responsibility that we have to forgive others. Brian Zond said in his book, Unconditional, in the first few pages he says, if Christianity is about anything, it is about forgiveness. Isn't it interesting to think in Luke, the 11th chapter and verse four, when Jesus was giving us that short model prayer, how forgiveness was definitely a part of that prayer for us to seek God's forgiveness and offer forgiveness to others. Isn't it interesting when we go to Luke 23 and 34, we see Jesus demonstrating this on the cross as he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When we look to John, the 20th chapter, it's interesting to note that this is the passage where he is making it clear. In John, the 20th chapter and verse 22, he says, this is Jesus talking to the apostles. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Here he's showing them the authority that they would have as they speak by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The words that they were going to speak were authority. But now of all the ways he could have illustrated that, he goes to the very core of Christianity. Now let's pause there for a moment. Who is the core of Christianity? Christ. Well, what is it that is the greatest that we could seek about Christ? Forgiveness. And so to illustrate this, Christ says, let me tell you how powerful it's going to be what you have to say. And he says to the apostles, you're going to go speak about forgiveness. 
And what you say about forgiveness, if folks will follow your doctrine, because it's from God, if they will follow that, sins will be forgiven, just as you have said, they will be forgiven. But if you teach, sins will not be forgiven under these conditions, sins will not be forgiven. Now that's sobering. That causes us to realize the fact that forgiveness is not just a free gift that has no conditions to it. And it also shows us here by Jesus going to the very core of the matter of how important this forgiveness really, really is. I'd like for you to think, and I really don't know how long ago it was, so if it was just a few months ago, I apologize. My memory's about that long. I think it's been maybe a few years ago. I shared with you this illustration of forgiveness, and, and I read it again this week. And I just want to begin this month, not just with this illustration of forgiveness, but I want you to see the discussion that follows this in the book that is entitled The Sunflower. And Simon Weisenthal wrote this book, and you'll remember just a brief description of his story is that Simon was an Austrian Jew that lived during World War II and was in a concentration camp and, of course, never dreamt that he would be able to live through this horrible experience. He was placed outside of a field of a German hospital and there he would look over at the neat graves of the German soldiers and he would be envious because he would see that their graves were neat and each one had a sunflower over it. And he knew that his body would be thrown into a mass grave and either burned or covered up. And in his words, he said, no one would put a sunflower on my grave to invite light into my life after my death. And so he, he was bitter about all of this experience. Easy to understand. One day, a German nurse came and ushered him into a hospital room and closed the door behind him. The man lying in the bed, his name was Carl, and he was a German soldier who was dying, and bandages were wrapped around every part of his body. The only part of his face that had holes in the bandages was for a mouth and two eyes, and Carl began to speak. And Weisenthal just stood there or sat there in silence for the next two hours. And he told about growing up in a Christian home. And Carl described his mom and dad as faithful Christians. But he said, at age 15, something changed. I joined Hitler's youth camps. And then he said, at 18, I joined the infamous SS troop. And he said, shortly after that, I was killing Jews. And he described story after story. He described going into a small village with bull whips and driving all of the Jews into a three-story house and then them standing around with their rifles and lighting the house on fire. He said, I watched a man hold his baby and his wife and mother beside and I watched their clothes on fire and I watched him cover the face of his baby and, and jump from the building from the third story. And I watched as we lit them up with bullets as they hit the ground. He said, I can't get out of my, my memory the face of the boy. I suppose he was six years old. With his dark eyes, he looked me in the face and I shot him. Story after story after story. For two hours, he told these stories. And then he said this, I am left here with my guilt. In the last hours of my life, you are here with me. I do not know who you are. I only know that you are a Jew. And that is enough. I know that what I have told you is terrible. In the long nights while I have been waiting for death, time and time again, I have longed to talk about this to a Jew. 
and beg forgiveness from him. Only I didn't know if there were any Jews left. I know that what I am asking is almost too much for you. But without your answer, I cannot die in peace. And Weisenthal sat in silence as he had done for the previous two hours. And then he stood up and he walked out of the room. Carl left his personal possessions to Weisenthal and Weisenthal refused them. And to Simon's surprise, he lived through the Holocaust. 89 members of his family did not. Now he had to deal with that afternoon in his memory. And so he decided he was going to search for Carl's mother and he found her. And he said, I just want to hear the story of your son. And she described this, this good young boy. And said, as a matter of fact, he always did the right thing. And I'm sure that he always did the right thing all the way to the very end. And Simon said in silence, just as he had done with her son, except this time he did it out of kindness. And after the visit, he excused himself. He wrote this book, but the second part of this book is why I especially wanted to mention this to you this morning. The second part of this book is a symposium where he asked 53 of the prominent thinkers around the world, should I have forgiven him? Not excuse him from war crimes, just as a personal individual, should I have forgiven him? Was I wrong or right to sit in silence? And he asked Christians, Jews, Muslims, atheists, ministers, philosophers, and he asked 53 of them. 28 said emphatically no. 16 said yes. Nine responded they were unclear. But what I would like for you to know is that of the 16 who said yes, 13 of them were Christians. The other three were Buddhist. No atheist, no Muslims, no Jews said forgive. Listen, there is something peculiar about Christianity and is at the heart of Christianity is forgiveness. If Christianity is anything, it is forgiveness. The very reason Christ came to this earth was for forgiveness. The very reason we call ourselves Christ Christians is because we follow the one whose existence on this earth was for our forgiveness. He not only led the way in demonstrating it, he led the way in providing it. And we wrestle with this because it is against our human nature. And then sometimes we're too apathetic with this because we forget how much is at stake when the absence of forgiveness is dwelling within our being. You see a beautiful strand of pearl necklaces, of necklace 
Do you realize that all you tend to see are the pearls? But if there was not that thread running through the center of each of those pearls, those pearls would be scattered across the floor and you wouldn't admire them as a piece, beautiful piece of jewelry. And sometimes I think we fail to see that these 66 books that are encased in this cover, they're not some kind of random books, but they're books that God has brought together with one single thread running through them. And that thread is to say, let me show you how I am forgiving mankind. Let me show you about redemption. Wayne Jackson says you can divide the Bible into three parts. The creation, the degeneration, and the regeneration. The creation in the first few chapters. The degeneration begins in Genesis, the third chapter. Sin is introduced into the world and we are separated from God. And the regeneration is all that God has done to bring us back in relationship with him. On this next slide, I'd like for you to think here of just some simple things that if you know the Bible uh, much at all, you're going to recognize these things. But what I want you to think about this morning and throughout this month, I want you to think about how these things are brought to us really because of God's work to regenerate us, of God's work to forgive us. When we think about creation, we think about the very fact that God was close to Adam and Eve, but in Genesis, the third chapter, it was sin that broke that relationship. And then we see just a few pages over in our Bible, Genesis, the 12th chapter, and we see Abraham's covenant that God made with him. Why did he give him a nation? Why did he give him a land? We learn why in that very same covenant. He says, so that you will be a blessing and that through you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. That blessing was to bring about Jesus so that forgiveness would be brought to the world. All the way back in Genesis 12, we're getting some true and even to some degree clear insight that the rest of this book is going to be about forgiveness. And then when we see that covenant that was made with the children of Israel, remember they're out there wandering in the wilderness and God doesn't just say, I want you to be my people. He points out the fact that I want you to be my covenant people. I want to make an agreement with you. We don't have a slide for this, but I want to read a couple of verses out of Exodus, the 19th chapter. And if you're looking in Exodus 19, it's on verse five and six that we're going to read. This is Exodus 19, five and six. And notice what he says and think about this covenant relationship. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And here it is, a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And what did he do? He came down and he spoke to Israel and said, do you want to be God's covenant people? Okay, what's the covenant? And he spoke the 10 commandments. Four of them dealt with their relationship with God. The other six dealt with their relationship with each other. And they had to decide, are we going to be God's people? Any of you that are married, you remember the day that you got married? Remember that you made vows? In other words, you said, I'm going to enter into this relationship. I'm going to be close to this person. Relationship. I'm going to be close to this person, not distant, not, oh, I never met them. I don't know them. 
relationship. I'm going to join into this relationship with them and it's a covenant relationship and here are the vows that I'm going to make for richer and poorer, sickness and health. And, and we see those vows and we think here God is standing with Israel and he's saying, I want to be close to you. Here are the vows that I want you to make. Are you willing to do these things? Now, when we note that Israel did not always do well at doing this, notice it was always their sin that separated them from God. As a matter of fact, they left God to such a degree that he said, I'm going to let most of you be destroyed. But even then, the remnant that was held back was to offer hope not just for that dispensation of time, but for that which is coming. The text that was read just a few moments ago, look at Micah again. Micah, the seventh chapter, and this you've noticed in your Bible is the last few verses of this entire book. The first third of the book is God saying, here are the sins that my countrymen are, or Micah is saying on behalf of God, here are the sins that my countrymen are committing. And the next third of the book is this is the way God is going to punish. And the last third of the book is hope in the fact that there is going to be a restoration and that restoration is going to be through Christ and his covenant. But I'd like for you to note this. And, and I probably should have said this earlier on, but in a moment we'll slow down and, and we'll make this point stronger. But, but just note this for right now. The whole idea of forgiveness is always wrapped up in a relationship with God and the presence of God. And so here he's going to make this new covenant, but I want you to notice how all of this language is, is just wrapped in language of forgiveness. Look again at Micah 7 and 18, and, and don't, don't just take this for granted. Think about each of these phrases. Who is a God like you? There's not going to be anybody else that can do what he is about to say. Well, what can God do? pardoning iniquity. That's what forgiveness is, is, is for that crime, for, for it to be pardoned, for us to be released from it. And passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. In other words, let's, let's not hold on to it anymore. Let's move beyond it. Look at the next phrase. He does not retain his anger forever. Remember, Jesus Christ was the, the one of propitiation. He his offering was like an atonement to appease the wrath of God. So Christ is going to appease that wrath. Notice the rest of this. Because he delights in mercy. Who is God? Is he one that from the very beginning is saying, I just can't wait to destroy man? No. He is the one from the very beginning saying, I want relationship with man. I want to be close with man. Man has sinned. I want to bring man back. I want to do this through a covenant that's going to lead to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is going to be ultimately the one that will be that sacrifice. Look at 19. He will again have compassion on us. That's prophecy of Christ and the new covenant and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. In that day and time, if something went to the depths of the sea, there was absolutely no way to retrieve it. And so that was a way of saying this will be put out of the reach of man. It's out of our existence, so to speak. And then he continues on. I'd like for you to drop back in your Bible to Jeremiah, the 31st chapter. And just quickly, I want to show you a couple of things, not changing the subject here. This is the same kind of language where Jeremiah prophesied of that new covenant also that would come through Christ. In Jeremiah 31 and 31, notice he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel. And 32, it's not going to be according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. Look at 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. Here it is. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Do you realize that everything about that first covenant that was made with Abraham, it was made to bring about forgiveness. And everything about that, that relationship that he was establishing with Israel in the wilderness, he was saying, I want us to have a relationship and I want you to live a life so that we can maintain that relationship. And so here are the sins that you need to stay away from them. Do not do these. Will you honor these 10 commandments? They didn't do a good job at that. And so because of that, they lost the presence of God and they lost the protection of God and they were destroyed. Now, is everything hopeless? He says, no, through this remnant, I'm going to make a promise. Israel will rise up again, but now Israel is going to be a new Israel. It's not going to be a nation that lives in one land. It's going to be all those that become a part of Christ. They're going to be the ones that have forgiveness through Christ. I'd like for you to think with me for just a moment. And, and this, is, this, will, this thread will run through the rest of this lesson for the last few minutes we have. I'd like for you to go back in your mind's eye to the tabernacle. When you think about the tabernacle, what do you think about? You remember that within the tabernacle was the holy place? And you remember that, that offerings for sin were made. Why? Why were offerings for sin made? Because in the holy of holies was the presence of God. And if we are ever going to have relationship and be close to God, our sins have to be forgiven. Now pause here for a moment. I know that what I'm saying is as fundamental as fundamental can be, but I am so afraid that as a religious culture, we are losing this in America today, and I want to make sure that as a church family, we understand this clearly. Just because I say I'm close with God doesn't mean I'm close with God if I do not have the presence of God in my life. And I want you to see this from Old Covenant through New Covenant, and we'll spend a little more time on it next week. But what was the tabernacle? It was a place where the presence of God dwelt. And if people were going to have the blessing of the presence of God, what did they have to do? They had to come and bring sacrifice so that their sins would not separate them from God. In other words, in that sense, they had to seek God's forgiveness or they could not have the presence of God. Do you remember in Exodus, the 32nd chapter, how significant it was that sin removed the presence of God? And by the way, if you're doing a study on on, uh, sin and forgiveness and redemption and, and all the things that we're talking about this morning, really, this is one of the first times in the Bible where it starts to really be pointed out clearly the cost of sin and 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 various things of that nature. And what is this? This is the time where the children of Israel built the calf. And so Moses comes down and and let's read verse 30, Exodus 32 and 30. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, 
you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses is saying, he's saying, listen, we have a serious problem here. You've created a sin that's going to separate this nation from God. I'm going to go and see if there's anything that we can do to make atonement for our sin. And so notice 31, Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And in 33, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. God says, look, I have a book. And this book is going to be the book of those that will dwell with me, not just on this earth. They will dwell with me forever. And sin not only separates us from God now, but it separates us from ever. And Moses loves the people so much, he says, take my name out of the book and let their name remain. And he says, it won't work that way. It's each individual sin that separates them from God or it's each individual's forgiveness that they seek from God that draws them to God. And the rest of this is a beautiful, powerful study about God not dwelling in the midst of the people because they're sinful people. Because of his merciful ways, he did promise in the following verses, I will send my angel and I will let him lead you to that land, but I am not going to dwell among those people anymore. And you remember in the next chapter, Moses literally packs up his tent and he goes outside the camp and he sets up his tent and here it's called a meeting of the tabernacle so that God's presence would come. Now let's just pause here for a moment and make this real clear. You can imagine the children of Israel in their camp and they're saying, Moses, you're our leader. Why are you packing your tent? Because you guys are sinful. And God doesn't dwell in the midst of sinful people. And I want God in my life. I want the presence of God. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pack up my tent and I'm going to go where God will come. He won't go in the presence of sinful people, but I'm going to be out here. And by the way, if you want to see the presence of God, you can come out and join me outside the camp. And that's what's so significant about this whole exercise is it is proving to mankind that God will not dwell among sin. And Moses literally had to leave the sinful people for God to dwell among him. And then in the next few verses, when God is saying, go ahead and lead them, he's saying, absolutely not. If your presence will not go with us, we'll stay out here rather than go without you. So what's the point? So we don't lose this thought. I want you to think with me, and we don't have time to develop these, but, but I want you to think with me. In John, the first chapter, what is so significant about Jesus coming to this earth? Remember what the presence of God? God came and notice, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now it's a shame that in our modern language that we've translated that dwelt. Because if you go back to the original, it is the idea that God came and camped or lived in a tent 
are tabernacled among us. God came in his tabernacle. He came through Christ being God, came and dwelt among us. And so what did he do? He, of course, died on the cross to offer that way of forgiveness. And now all those that are saved, where are they? Where are the saved? Look, if you will, in 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God, talking about the church? Do you not know that you're the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And so someone says, I want to be a part of the church. Okay, how do you become a part of the church? Who is the church? Let's go ahead and, and let's add this next one. Go over to 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. Here, pleading with individuals to leave immorality because that's the way the world would live. And if we're not a part of the world and we're going to live where God would live, what are we going to be? He says in 18, to flee sexual immorality. And in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6, he says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are Christ. So if we're going to have God near us, Christ came and he was God tabernacling with us, to redeem us. And when we are redeemed, we are the church, which is the temple of God, the tabernacle. It's the place that God dwells. It is separate from the world. It's a place that we cling and cleave to God. And so we say we want to be a part of the church. What we're saying is we want to be forgiven. And when we live a life of forgiveness, what we're saying is I want to live separate from sin. Now think how strange it is for somebody to say, well, I want to live in this immorality over here, but I want forgiveness. I can't, I can't have both. I want to live in this immorality and I want the presence of God in my life. I can't have both. The very presence of God demands that we have forgiveness that has been brought into our life. And then as it's brought into our life, we respond as living as a new creation. And then finally, in Revelation, we read that there is not going to be a temple talking about a physical structure in earth because God and the Lamb are there and they are that temple. Forgiveness. It's a topic that others can't truly appreciate that are outside the Christian faith because where we benefit is literally everything from near the beginning of our existence on this earth as a human race has been done so that we can be forgiven and become people that are willing to forgive. Are you forgiven this morning? That's really all that matters. To have a life that says, I want to be in the presence of God. I want to live close to God and I don't want my sins in the past separating and I don't want to live a life today that would separate me. I want to live in the presence of God. This morning, if your life is separated from God and we could help you, if you're ready to be baptized into Christ, we'd love to assist you with that. If you want prayers of a church, if you want prayers of the forgiven to talk to the one who can forgive, we would be honored to do that on your behalf. If we can help you in any way, come.